Good morning. Reading from Genesis 1. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from the tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Thank you, Amir, very much. Good morning, everybody. The Bible. What is the Bible about? What is the primary purpose of the Bible? We are going to be very confused and frustrated if we think that the Bible is about a million different things and a million different purposes rather than it's clearly about some one thing. It really helps us to know Particularly, we'll unpack this throughout this series. What exactly is God trying to communicate to us through the Bible? What is its primary purpose? We have a uh, slide up here, and it's just simply a picture of the table of contents of a Bible. If you have a Bible here this morning, uh, you probably have a table of contents, and there's what it says. So you see what it says? The Old Testament and the New Testament. Testament is a Latin word meaning covenant. The Bible is about one thing. The Bible is about a covenant. It's the only thing God is trying to communicate to us in there. Every story, everything we read about, all comes back to the covenant. So you have that little uh, bulletin, and on the back, if you didn't know this, there's a place where you can fill in a blank, and this is kind of important. Covenant is a life or death agreement. It's a life or death agreement. In other words, it's super serious. I mean, we're talking life or death here. That's what a covenant is. It's how we enter into a relationship with God. We enter into a relationship with God through a covenant. The covenant was broken back in the garden. And so as Amir just read, there's going to be death. Death is involved because it was a conditional covenant. If you break it, you will die. Now you help me. I'll point to you when it's your turn to speak here. Ready? See if you can complete this. Cross my heart, hope to die. Very good. Very good. Where do you think that came from? What is cross my heart? That's kind of a religious symbol, isn't it? Cross my heart. It's hearkening back to the severity of the covenant. It's a life or death agreement that we make with God. The closest thing that we have to it in our world, don't get caught up in this because we're not talking about marriage today, but the closest thing we have in the United States of America in 2014 to a covenant ceremony is the marriage ceremony, the wedding ceremony. We're going to try again. I'm going to say a few lines to see if you can complete this one word. To have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health until 
do us part. There you go. Where do you think that comes from? It's based in the covenant. And what you're going to see is many things that we have in our world today, things that you do every single day, things that you're normal, uh, normal life, you'll realize that the roots of those things many times are in the covenant that we find right here in the Bible. And for the next seven weeks, we're going to unpack that. And you're going to see there's so much stuff that we do that represents the covenant in our daily lives today. The Bible can be very frustrating. It can be very confusing. I have to say that. It can be very frustrating and confusing if we think that the Bible is about many, many different things. All right? So creation. So there was a big debate just recently, and this has been going on for, for many, many years, this whole you know, creation and what does the Bible have to say about creation. And so Bill Nye, the science guy, debates Ken Ham. And it's like, oh, man, you know, Ken Ham, who is the Christian guy and the biblical guy, just really, according to a lot of people, falls way short. And so a lot of people say, well, you know, I'm not going to believe in the Bible because it's a bunch of myths and a bunch of fairy tales and it's, it's not for real. And then, and then how about this? How about Jonah and the whale? or joining the fish or whatever. I mean, can, a, can a fish swallow a person? And how about Cain? What about Cain? It says that Adam and Eve, you know, they have two sons. They have Cain and Abel, and Cain kills Abel, and then Cain goes out, and he marries somebody. Well, who's he marrying? So, John, I'm not going to believe in the Bible, and I'm not going to believe in Jesus Christ until you can tell me who Cain is marrying, right? So it gets really frustrating. But we have to realize this. The Bible is not a book about creation. If God wanted to write a book about science, I bet he could have written a really good book about science. And you have to get comfortable with the fact that God is writing about one thing. And all over the place in the Bible, you see it. It's about covenant. Not creation, not a flood, not Cain's wife, not Jonah and the fish, not walking on water, not feeding the 5,000. Until we wrap our brains around that, it's going to be really frustrating for us. The Bible's about one thing. Look, if I wrote the Bible, it'd be about all kinds of stuff. It'd be all over the map. But God doesn't suffer from ADD like I do. God is very focused. He's focused, and he's focused on this one thing, and the one thing he's focused on is the covenant. Now, I want to show you this. This is really old, so some of you may have seen this before. So let's flash it up here. If our greatest need had been information, well, then God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, well, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness, so God sent us a Savior. And the Savior is part of the covenant. It's very important. So what's happening here? What's happening here? Covenant is an agreement. It's a contract. These next seven weeks, if you're a lawyer, you ought to be giddy happy. All right? So if you're a lawyer, I'd want to see big smiles on your face. Because this is about a contract. So we got a picture. Here's what the covenant is. It's God. And he's sliding the contract across to us saying, here you go. What, are you, what will you do with it? That's why we called it your move. It warrants a response. A response to the covenant that God puts before us. Now, here, here, here's the problem. Here's just my personal. i tell you about me personally. I've spent many years of my life trying to figure out things outside of the covenant, like spending all my time. Rather than realizing that the primary purpose of the Bible is covenant, I'm like, oh God, man, I've got to figure out about this creation thing, or I've got to figure out about Cain's wives and all this. I want to show you a video. I hope you can see this. Flash that video up. Just run that loop on that video there, if you will. So this was taken 
I know the, the quality is not that good. This was taken outside of a Walmart. And so they sent this guy working for the Walmart out there to get rid of the snow out in the driveway. And so if you can't see it, to a, he's shoveling the snow in that shopping cart, right? And that's the way I feel many times in my life. I'm, I'm out there, man. I'm shoveling. I got, I got to figure out creation. I got to figure out Cain. I got to figure out who his wives are. I got to figure out Jonah and the big fish. And I'm shoveling. But I'm getting, no, I'm sweating. I'm doing something, but I'm only frustrating and confusing myself. Just like the guy there shoveling. Look at that poor guy. Well, I mean, would somebody come along and tell him that the shopping cart has holes in it, right? Because he's not getting, not getting anywhere. Okay. Anyway. All right. Me reading this book and saying, I got to know every detail about Cain's wives. And I've got to know every detail about Jonah. I've got to know every detail about how in the world you feed those 5,000 people. And how did you walk on the water? And tell me everything about creation. It's like me wanting to know every detail about football. And I'm reading a book about basketball. Look, we're not calling the shots here. You'll read this all over the place in the Bible. God says, I will establish my covenant with you. God's calling the shots. This is what he's revealing about himself. He's revealing his covenant. He's not revealing creation. He's not revealing Cain's wives. He's not revealing all this. So we don't get details about that. I would have liked more details, a lot more details. And until we come to that understanding, we're going to be frustrated and we're either going to have major problems over here and no peace and frustration or on the other extreme, we're just going to say, well, God said it and I believe it. Ha ha, that settles it, which seems kind of like intellectual suicide, right? So we have to understand that clearly, clearly, this is a book about covenant. It's the main purpose. And when you understand that, there can be peace. And you begin to see all throughout the Bible, oh my goodness, this thing that is written here where, where Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. You're like, oh, oh, that's gross. What is that? What is that? Now, when you understand it's about covenant, you're like, oh my gosh. Oh yeah, I got it. That's cool. And I'm going to show you in a couple of weeks. We actually celebrate that. I'm talking Washington, progressive Washingtonians love that. I'm going to prove it to you in a few weeks. How about where Jesus says, you know, apart from me, you can do nothing. Like, what? I'm a Washingtonian. I'm a high-powered, you know, the best of the best, the brightest of the brightest, the most powerful city on the face. How can you tell me apart from you I can do nothing? Well, we understand God's not making a jab at us. He's not saying, oh, man, you don't have talent or you don't have things. What he's saying to you is you're in covenant with me. People who are in covenant with each other, there's a death of their independence. They don't ever do anything apart from each other. It's all covenant language. And you're going to begin to see all of these stories and all this, all, so many of this is going to hearken right back to the covenant. And then it's going to click and it's going to start to make sense. When you realize that the Bible was inspired by God, it is a collection of 66 books written by 39 different authors over a period of 1,500 years with one single unifying theme. And you realize that my family of four who has pizza every Friday night has, a, has an argument and debate about where we're going to get that pizza from because we can't, we can't agree on where we're getting the pizza from on Friday night. And you realize that these 39 people over 1,500 years wrote about one thing. And then you begin to stand in awe and say, oh my gosh, that is incredible. How could they have done that? Because they were inspired by God. Now... 
Many years ago, I uh, took my wife. She was not my wife at the time. I took my, my then-to-be wife to a park in Annandale off a Little River Turnpike. And then this really big tree there with this huge limb that came down pretty low, fairly low to the ground. And I picked her up, and I put her in that limb. And I looked up at her, and I said, Will you marry me? Well, she's in the limb, so she can't get down. She has to, right. I said, will, will you marry me? And there was this long pause. She eventually said yes. It took her some while. But that's exactly what's happening here this morning. All of heaven is holding its breath as God slides the covenant across the table to us. And heaven holds its breath and wonders, how will you and I respond to the covenant that God is offering us? How will we respond? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, Lord, we are talking about your covenant, what your word is really all about. Help us, Lord, to see covenant language, covenant signs, covenant symbols all over the place. And maybe, maybe for some of us, for the first time ever, the Bible really begins to make sense. And we declutter all this stuff and the power of your word just shines through. Let it be transformational today. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, um, you'll, you'll want to follow along. Actually, this will help you just to kind of categorize this in your mind. There's ten, there's ten elements to the covenant in a covenant ceremony. Just like there's all these elements to a wedding ceremony. For those who have been to a wedding ceremony, there's all these elements. There's all these elements to a, to a covenant ceremony. We're going to go through just three of them today. There's ten. We're just going to go through three. And I have a couple people that are going to come out from right over here. They're going to help us out today uh, with this. My son, Jonathan, and then also our Bible reader, Amir. There he is. Mir's a New York Giants fan. Don't uh, hold that against him. Easy. Easy. <clears throat> okay, number one, write this in. So write this in. In a covenant ceremony, what you would do is you would exchange robes. So what we're immediately going to have them do. So, so if Jonathan and Amir are entering into this covenant, the first thing they would do is they exchange robes. They're going to do that right now just so you guys can see it. And I'm going to explain the significance of the robe change. And then we're going to point out a few places in the Bible where you see it. So... You got to know this is Amir is taking off that robe and it's very, you, you get a lot about Amir's personality from the robe that he's wearing today, right? Yeah. We didn't give this to him. He brought this from his house. This is what he wears around the house. I'm no, just joking. Okay. You, you need to understand this, everybody. So back then, right, when they're doing, this wasn't like you and me where we go to our closet and we're like, oh man, I got 50 robes. Which robe am I going to wear today? No, you had one robe. And it had a lot to do with you, with who you were. It was your identity. So like when somebody sees you trucking on down, they'd look up and maybe they couldn't see your face, but they would see the robe. It was distinctive. And they say, oh, here comes a mirror. I see it. Now, what happens when they change robes? What happens when Jonathan has a, a mirror's robe on? Well, he, we, we look and we say, oh, my goodness, that looks like Jonathan, but he's in a mirror's robe. And that looks like a mirror, but he's in he's in Jonathan's. Robe. It blurs identity. Ah, here we go. So the book of Romans and the book of Galatians tells you to do what? It says, robe yourself in Jesus Christ. Now, we might, we might read that and say, oh, man, that's cool. Every morning I get up, I got to get my Jesus on. So before I go out and greet the world, I'm going to get my Jesus on. And how, whatever that means to you to put your Jesus on, I don't know. Put your Jesus. But you know what? That's not what it 
I mean, that's cool. But that's not exactly what it means. What that is is covenant language. It means, remember, enter into that covenant with Jesus Christ. And if you've entered into the covenant, exercise. Remember, you have a covenant partner. And what does Jesus Christ do? John chapter 1, we're told this repeatedly. Jesus Christ takes on, who knows the word? He takes on what? Flesh, which is whose robe? Our robe. So why does the Bible make such a big deal about Jesus Christ taking on flesh? Because Jesus has taken on our robe and we are taking on his robe. Now, some people might say, hey, let's play for a second that uh, Amir, Amir is Jesus, okay? And now Jonathan has Jesus' robe on. And so people say, how can, you know, how can I be you know, free of sin? How is that possible? How can I experience justification? How can I be a person just as if I've never sinned? How is that possible? Because I know I'm sinning. All the time. So how is it possible? Well, because when the Father looks at you, what does the Father see? He sees the robe of Jesus Christ. He sees the robe of Christ. This is what he sees. This is what it means to be in Christ. Romans 8.1. Now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So that's the first thing that they would do. It would blur the identity. They would, they would exchange robes. Here's the second thing that they would do on your list that we have. The second thing they would exchange is belts. Now, they had really big belts. These are kind of wimpy small belts, but it's the best I could do because I, I just didn't have any really big belts. So what they would do with their belts, this is where they hung all their military gear. And what that symbolizes to us is your strength, your assets, what you have backing it up, you know, like, like your bank account, right? So it was your strength. It was your assets. And so what they would do, they exchange it. We see that with David and Jonathan in 1 Samuel 18, that they change robes, right? And, and then they also, with the belts, are mentioned there. And so when you read in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul says, when I am weak, then I am strong. What does he mean by that? Well, it's again, covenant language. It's covenant language. This means this, that even though there might be a time when Jonathan might feel weak, he's got a covenant partner who is always strong, and his name is Jesus Christ. And because you're in covenant, you always have the strength, and you always have the assets, and you always have the riches of your covenant partner. It's part of the covenant that you made. You're never completely weak because you have strength. And the final thing that they would exchange that we'll show you now is weapons. And these are really, again, wimpy weapons. Uh, they're actually, it's meant to be a sword, but uh, it's not. Our kids used to use this for the Christmas plays, so it's a staff, and I took the bottom off, but you don't need to know all that. Uh, so, so they would exchange weapons. And what does that mean? It means that when you exchange weapons, it means we are exchanging enemies. We're exchanging enemies. So who is Adam's enemy? In the garden, if you do this conditional covenant, you will die. So his enemy becomes death, right? It becomes death. And so what that would mean is if this is Adam and this is Jesus and they've exchanged enemies, it means that Jesus here has to take on Adam's enemy death. So now does 1 Corinthians chapter 15 begin to make sense? We have an entire chapter, a very long chapter, everybody, which is all about Jesus Christ taking out the sting of death and overcoming the grave. And, you know, we have so much more about that in other places in the Bible, but we have this very long chapter. Why? Why do we have it? Why is it written so long? Because what God is saying to us in the covenant is, is that Jesus Christ has taken on our enemy of death and he's defeated it and he's taken the sting out of it. And that's what it means. Now, it also means this, that we've got to take on Jesus' enemy. And whose enemy is that? Ephesians chapter 6 says, We struggle not against flesh and blood, but against forces of evil in very dark places. Over 90% of this country believes in a personal, benevolent God. 
a loving, good spirit God. However you want to put the name to it, over 90% of this country believes in that. Less than 50% of this country believes in an evil force or what we'll call as Satan. Does that strike you as odd, just on an intellectual level, that we can believe in a benevolent, good spirit, but we have a hard time believing over here in an evil spirit, particularly when there's so much evidence that an evil force exists in this world, right? When the stuff that we see happen on this planet sometimes is extraordinarily cruel. There is so much evidence. And so we see this exchange of enemies. Well, that's all we're going to use the fellas for today. I thought they did an excellent uh, job. Thank you very much for the colorful robe. Those are three points. We're going to finish all ten, but we're not going to do it today because uh, I just told you a few minutes ago that this service is only 60 minutes long. So uh, we're going to skip down unto where how we exercise the authority of the covenant, and then next week we'll keep filling in the blanks on the elements of the covenant ceremony. So you want to fill this one in. Uh, how is the authority of the covenant exercised? The authority of the covenant is exercised through our words. This is really important. So this is a personal application then of what does covenant mean to you? So the Bible is all about covenant. So, well, what does that mean to my daily life? What well, actually means a lot to our daily life. So check this out. We read in Genesis chapter one, fill this blank in God spoke. God spoke. Really important. So as the whole world begins, God speaks. Now, look, we don't have a lot of details about creation, but what's the one detail that God keeps telling us over and over and over again? I spoke, I spoke, I spoke and created light and I spoke and created land and the sea. I spoke it. I spoke it with my words into existence. So the thing is, the Bible obviously has been saying this for many, many years. People say, well, we need more details about creation. But the one thing that we do know, the one simplest thing that we do know is that there was nothing and now there is something. And science told us up until about 100 years ago that people, very bright people, felt that this universe was eternal. It was without beginning. And the Bible contradicted that. And then about 100 years ago, we realized through Einstein and the theory of relativity and a lot of different other stuff, we realized, oh, no, wait a minute. It did have a beginning. Kind of like the Bible said, but the Bible didn't give me other details. You know why the Bible didn't give you other details? Because the Bible's about one thing. What's it about? Covenant. It's about covenant. It's about God's covenant. And so we see here that the covenant begins and God speaks it. Now, here's what's really cool. Next thing we see happen in Genesis chapter 2 is Adam is doing what? Amir just read it a few minutes ago. Speaking. He begins to name everything. Write that down. It's important. Adam speaks. God speaks. Adam speaks. God says, I'm going to give you rule and dominion and authority. And how does he exercise that rule and dominion and authority? He speaks. He speaks. And he begins to name things. He's naming koala bears and panda bears. I don't know all these names. And finally, he names one final creature, right? And that is who? Woman. Yes, he names woman. It's Eve. She's woman. He's naming, he's naming, he's naming. Then in Genesis chapter 3, something really terrible takes place, doesn't it? The covenant is broken. What happens right before the covenant is broken? So you have the serpent. He comes into the garden, right? And you've got Eve being tempted by the serpent. But do you realize that Adam is standing right there? And as the serpent is speaking and saying, hey, look, forget about the covenant with God. Do your own thing. What does God really know anyway? Adam, instead of speaking the authority of the covenant and saying, no, I reject that. Get out of this garden. He had the authority to do it. He had rule and he had dominion. God was really clear about that. He had rule and dominion. Instead of him standing up and being a man at that moment saying, no, out, leave. Instead of doing that, he goes passive and he goes silent. And then the covenant is broken. 
you need to really take note of that. This is how the covenant begins. It's crucial. Our words are very, very important. And he goes silent. Authority is exercised through words, right? So people say, stop, stand, halt. Who goes there, right? Different words. Very important. Have you ever met somebody who has tremendous authority with their words? One of our staff members, Mariana, who works uh, back in Graceland, tremendous authority with her words. I see it because she works for a school that's at our church office. I see it here on Sundays. I can be in a room with 23-year-olds, and I could say, hey, kids, stop. Hey, kids, stop. Hey, kids, stop. Hey, kids, stop. Stop! They don't hear me. She walks in, and she says, kids, stop. Bam! All of a sudden, it just ends. They just stop right there. How does she do it? There's a certain authority about words. My son, um, he loves to do music stuff and concerts, and he did this thing um, back in, in October where he... Um, it was heavy metal bands, like heavy hit, non-Christian heavy metal bands, right? And part of my role in helping them out that day was I was interfacing with, like, the top bands, their tour managers. And uh, very aggressive, Okay, extraordinarily aggressive, mean every other word was F, right? And it was in your face and it was screaming and you better, you sorry. Just, I mean, it was brutal. And um, I was working throughout the day. I was working with a guy named, named Chris. And what Chris did for a living is he was a bodyguard. Right. And so, uh, you know, Chris wasn't there like the first time I interfaced with this one manager who was just giving me fit, just F you stupid, just, just going off on me. And then later in the day, Chris was with me and the guy was guy was just going off, wouldn't listen to anything I said. And, uh, you know, we got a, like, I don't know, two minutes into the conversation and Chris just steps up and he says, hey, that was it. <laughs> that was it. There were no you know, the words. It was, hey, I'm like. How come I don't have hay? I mean, well, hey, I'm hay all over the place. Hey, 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 nothing. Chris says, hey, doesn't raise his voice. Just, hey. And the guy says, oh. And I say, immediately he goes like this, oh. And he gets quiet. It's amazing when you're around somebody who possesses the authority of words. Later, later on, they, this, this band, this particular band, they gave me their own radio. Like, here, you put this radio on. You're going to be our boy all day. And I could hear it every time I squawk. And they were like, John, you know, and they were always telling me to do something. And my guy, Chris, by the end of the day, he had it. He had it. And so he told the guy in a conversation, we we're all standing there together. And he told the guy, he says, look, uh, you're not talking to John anymore. I have the radio. From now on, all your conversation goes to me. You got it? The guy's like, yes. (laughs) So like 45 minutes later, something happens, and there's always a crisis going on. And Chris, I'm standing next to him. He's got the radio on, and I hear this, John, you know, angry. And Chris pulls out. He says, what did you not understand? You are talking to me. And the guy comes back and says, oh, I'm I'm so sorry. Uh... Why can't I have that kind of authority with my words? What is the deal? Words carry authority. They have power to them. Words are very powerful. Proverbs 18.21 says death and think about that. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. My question to you is, do you speak life or death with your tongue? Which one are you speaking? Does death come out of your mouth or does life come out of your mouth? It's our decision. 
Death and life is in the power of the tongue. Catherine Marshall, who was married to Peter Marshall, chaplain of the United States Senate, was a writer. And she decided one day that she was not going to say anything negative. No negative words were going to, nothing gossipy was going to, nothing like that. She was just going to do her best to speak the kind of, you know, noble and true and trustworthy and honest and uplifting words that she felt like the Bible and Jesus Christ was calling her to do. And she said she was amazed as she made that pact to live that day. When she got to the end of the day, she felt a peace. And as a writer, this is important, tremendous creativity like she had not had before. Words are powerful and words are very important. Here's what Jesus Christ has to say about words. Think about this. Matthew 12. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. Oh, please don't say it so. Okay. For by your words, you'll be acquitted. Legal speech. By your words, you'll be acquitted. And by your words, you will be condemned. How do you like this in James? This is what Jesus' brother James says. The tongue also is a fire. A world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. You know anybody whose tongue's been set on fire by hell? You ever had to hang out with people? Why is it that you hang out with certain people and they just immediately drain you? Why is it that there are certain people that you're around? And you're like, oh man, would you just? I, I could. I'd pay you to shut up, you know, because you got, like every bit of life is just ebbing out of me. The more you speak, just stop speaking. It's, why is that? Life and death in the tongue. Why is that? Why is that? And how often are we around people who speak life, and then we when we walk away from them, man, we just feel like energized, charged up, like we just had a good cup of coffee. Why is that? Because life and death is in the power of the tongue. Now, think about this. Romans ten seventeen. Think about this when it comes to our faith in God. Think about this. Listen. Faith comes from hearing. People say, well, I just don't know that I have the faith. Where does faith come from, everybody? Faith, the Bible says, comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word about Christ. Words are powerful. They're life and death. And when you hear words that are about the covenant of God, it brings faith to us. When we respond to that covenant, our faith grows in Jesus Christ. Our faith in God grows as we respond to the covenant. Those words are powerful. The covenant is entered into. Our relationship with God is entered into by the words that we speak, that we confess with our mouth. That's how they're entered into. And how how is the covenant lived out? They're exercised. They're lived out by the words that we speak. Words are extraordinarily powerful in our lives. Listen to this. 1 John 1, 8 and 9. Very famous verse from the Bible. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then here it comes. Ready for this? If we confess, if we'll speak the words, if we'll speak the words, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and will purify us from all unrighteousness. There's a confession. There's words that we speak. We speak these words and we enter into the covenant. We exercise the covenant, but it happens through the words that we speak. Wouldn't it have been so great? And how would the world have been so incredibly different if with Adam and Eve and the serpent there in the garden, 
And the serpent's like saying all this stuff to Eve. Instead of Adam being silent, instead of Adam being passive, what if he would have said, stop, shut up, get out of my garden? How would the world have changed if he would have exercised the authority of the covenant through his words? And how would your life be different if you exercised the authority of covenant with your words? How would it be so incredibly different? I had something happen to me probably 15 years ago, everybody. Uh, my family had kind of gone through a rough time. And a family member said to me, says, look, I, need, I want to tell you something about your family. There's some things that I didn't know about my family. And they went way back into family history. And they said, look, that's kind of your family history. They explained these things. This is kind of your family history. And so since it's your family history and it's all the way through, you know, generation to generation, that's going to be your history. And something compelled me in that moment. At first I was like, oh, man, well, but something compelled me. Something rose up in me and I had a decision to make. And here's what was compelling me. I felt like, I felt like God was saying to me to speak. And I felt like God was saying to say, no. It's come this far and it'll go no farther in my family. That's it. And I felt like I had to say it. You follow me? What is it in your life? that you're struggling with in your own life or in your family. And you're like, well, I guess that's just the way it is. I guess God just takes pleasure in my pain. I guess it's the lot I've been handed. Or maybe it's something completely different. Maybe God's like, hey, we're covenant partners. When are you going to speak up and say, this far, no farther, stop right there, right? Like Adam should have done in the garden. How about that? I have this little goofy thing that I was, I wasn't even sure I was going to share it because it seems so kind of trivial. But this thing has kind of traveled around with me. I, and I can give you a million. I just give you two, but I can give you a million examples of this thing. But uh, here's, here's how it goes. Um, I'll tell you a story and then I'll explain it. So when I was in seminary 15, 16, 17 years ago, whatever it was, I took this class on preaching. And in this preaching class, like 35 of us seminaries in this preaching class, and my professor, Professor McLean, said at the very beginning of the class, on the first day of class, he said, okay, everybody's going to preach in this class. Everybody's going to preach a 12 to 15 minute message. And then he told us how to do it. Then he said this, then we're all going to circle around. We're going to give feedback to that person who preached. And let me tell you something. He really got really clear. He says, look, there will be absolutely no negative comments about any sermon. Zero. Don't you dare speak a negative comment about anything that is said when he says, got it? And they're like, yeah, okay, we got it. It's going to only be positive. You can't say something positive, just sit there in silence. So, okay, we got it. So we had all kinds of people preaching. You know, we're all new to preaching, so we're just trying it out. We had one guy preach on King Saul's grandson, whose name was Mephibosheth. Listen, everybody, this guy in a 15 minute sermon said Mephibosheth about 150 times. And it became really clear. He didn't really care about the Bible. He just liked the way the words came off of his mouth. Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth. I mean, he did it like that. It was over and over. And it was really hard when he was done. I don't want to be negative because I'm speaking about speaking words of life and truth. I don't want to be negative here, but it was really hard to come up with something good to say about Mr. Mephibosheth. And finally, as we got in the circle at the end, one person just raised their hand because you just waited. Anybody have anything to say? And they said, I really like the way you said Mephibosheth. Oh, yeah, yeah, we were all happy. So um, I was I was towards the end because my last name begins with the letter S, right? S, so I'm towards the end. And I did my, you know, 12, 15-minute message. And we got done, and we get in the big circle, the big huge circle of 35 seminarians, right? And we're going to be all positive. So, so here goes the first hand goes up. First hand goes, says, you know, Professor McLean, 
You told us that we could be nothing but positive. I'm sorry. That was the worst sermon that I have ever heard. That was terrible. And Professor McLean, of course, he's going to stand up and say, hey, wait a minute. We're justice here. This can't be. He didn't. He just sat right there. Okay. okay. And no, another person raised their hand over here and said, yeah, I want to add to it. That was terrible. I didn't say, why did you do this? And then after three or four people piled on, Mr. Mephibosheth raises his hand. I mean, of all people, he should just sit there in silence. And you know what Mephibosheth had to say? He said, you know what? You move around so much when you speak. It made me dizzy. I thought I was going to pass out. I had to close my eyes because I was afraid I was going to pass out watching you. That was terrible. Now, it's funny. I'm glad you're laughing at my pain. But... uh, it's funny, and I laugh about it now, but here's what I want to tell you. That stuff has happened to me all my life, weird stuff like that, just weird, kind of disrespectful stuff like that. Just, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's like you could follow me around with a camera. And just, so, um, I don't know, six, seven, eight, nine months ago, we were here. We were meeting with all these county officials from Arlington County, and we had the sound people in and all their officials and their representatives and stuff. And there's six, seven, eight of us, and we're standing in that stairwell right over there, just outside those doors. And we're in a big circle. We had completed our talks, and we're getting ready to go. And so the big-time county official who's in charge of everything, standing in a circle, he's like, all the way around, right? And so I'm standing right here. He shakes this person and shakes this person, skips my hand, shakes this person, shakes this person. And and so Derek says to me later, what's up with the handshake? I said, story of my life. (laughs) Story, story, story of my life. And so uh, that's kind of goofy and it sounds kind of small, but here's the thing. Here's what I know about you. You've got, you've got some story of your life too, don't you? You got something that's dragging around after you and causing you a problem. And in your dark moments, and your really hurtful moments, you're just like, I guess God just takes pleasure in my pain. And in my dark moments, I say, well, I guess that's just the way it is for me. And God's just like, hey, <laughs> there you go, John. Suffer, boy. Right? <laughs> but actually, if I understand the covenant, I realize that God is saying no. I understand my covenant partner saying No. And what he's really waiting for me to do is stand up and exercise the covenant. So, you know, it's come this far. It'll go no farther. I reject that in the name of Jesus Christ. That is not part of God's plan for my life. God is waiting for us, holding his breath, waiting for us to exercise the authority of the covenant rather than wallowing in our pain and rather than experiencing things in life that God doesn't want us to go through. He's waiting for us to confess it with our mouth and to speak those words It's come this far. It'll go no farther. I reject this. I reject this. And we need to do that. And I bet there's a bunch of us in this room this morning. You should not walk out of these doors today before you do that. You've lived with that long enough. Why continue to live with it? You know, we get we grow addicted to our pain sometimes, don't we? We get comfortable with it. Put an end to it. Speak up. Don't be Adam in the garden passive. Stand up and speak and reject that. Words are very, very powerful. Jesus Christ asks at a very important moment in the scriptures. He says to his disciples, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? The response is given back in words. Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. We enter into the covenant by speaking words. Very important. Let me give you two more scriptures and we're going to close. 
Romans chapter 10. Very important scripture. Look at this. The, the imagery. I want you to get the imagery of this. Romans 10, 8, 8 and 9. The word is near you. I feel that way for many of us in this room this morning. The word is near you. God wants to do something special, transformative in your life today. The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Speak it. You confess it. If you've never entered the covenant before, how does this covenant begin with you? It begins when you declare it with your mouth. Jesus Christ, I declare you as Lord of my life. That's how the covenant begins. It begins that way. How is it exercised? By when we continue to speak words in keeping with the covenant that God's put before us. Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, God elevated him, speaking of Jesus Christ, to the place of highest honor and gave him a name that is above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of our Father. You'll see on the screen behind me and you'll also see in your bulletin, I've put a prayer there today because this is how I want us to end. And I want to explain this to you. Let's take me just a moment. It's really important. It's based on Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Many of you have already entered the covenant. You have confessed Jesus Christ is Lord. And I think that's wonderful. And this is a good opportunity because we're going to pray this prayer at the end. It's a great opportunity for you to remember and to exercise how you entered the covenant in the first place by confessing Jesus Christ is Lord. And I want to encourage you to play that, pray that out loud in just a moment with me. There are those of you here this morning. You'd like to enter the covenant. The words are in your heart. They're in your mouth. They're right there. And you want to. And you're wondering, how do I, how do I get peace with God? You get peace with God by going ahead and proclaiming the words that are in your mouth. And you confess Jesus Christ as Lord. That's how you enter the covenant. And I want to strongly encourage you to make this the day. The imagery of Romans 10 is that you're right there. Heaven is holding its breath waiting for you to confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And for others here, we're still trying to decide. And you might be thinking to yourself, my goodness, this is my first, second, third time in this church. I didn't know they were going to have us all pray this prayer. That makes me feel uncomfortable. And what I wanted to do is put you at ease real quick. Because as we all pray this prayer in a minute, you think, oh, well, I'm, I'm not going to pray this prayer. And people are going to look at me and say, why aren't you praying that prayer? I want you to know this. We are not that kind of church. We are not that kind of church. You'll get nothing but total respect for where you stand spiritually. You'll be here the next decade of your life, taking your time, figuring out. That's up to you. That's completely up to you. So don't feel any pressure whatsoever. But for those of us who are here this morning who want to confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, this is a powerful experience, and I wanted us all to experience it together, to feel and to sense what it's like to confess with our mouth as one group of people, Jesus Christ is Lord. And I want to encourage you after we're done with this, and I pray, 
if there's something that you need to stand up with your words and you need to reject, you need to not be like Adam, not be passive, and you need to speak it and say this far, no farther, that you would give serious consideration to that before you leave because the covenant and all of its power is exercised through your words. So if you'll locate that prayer on your bulletin or if you'll look here on the screen, we're going to pray this together. We're going to confess it with our mouth. Ready? Let's pray. Jesus, we confess today that you are the Lord and Savior of our lives, and we place our trust completely in you. Amen. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. I just want to remind you before I pray, our prayer team is right over here. These people give their lives every week to praying and preparing themselves for this day to pray with you. They love you. They feel called by God to pray with you. I highly encourage you to give them some time if you want somebody to pray with you. We all need each other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for every single person in this room. I thank you, God, for their life and everything they're doing, you are doing in their lives. Lord, for those who have for the first time entered the covenant this morning by confessing you, Jesus, as Lord, God, we celebrate with all heaven. We celebrate this very important moment. For those of us this morning who are experiencing stuff that are outside of your covenant, it's not your will, and who are right now just wrestling with the thought, should I take a stand against this thing? God, I pray that you would give us wisdom as to how exactly we can stand against it with our words so that it could be put an end to. All of this frustration that sometimes that we go through would stop. And I ask this in Christ's name. Thank you, Lord. Amen. All right. God bless. Thank you so much uh, for being here. I'll see you out at the tent if you're signing up for the, uh, your move. Thanks for listening to this week's message. Grace Community Church, a church for people who don't go to church, meets on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. in Arlington, Virginia. Connect with us anytime at trygrace.org.